0: Well, hey there, one of the cool traditions we have as a church is that the last Sunday of every year, we do an Ask Anything Sunday, and what that means is each service, people text questions in that they would like for our directional team to answer. So that's what we are doing today, and so what you're about to watch or listen to is really all three services put together. Uh, There were different questions throughout the day, so uh, take a look, take a listen, and I hope it encourages you.
1: Let's roll. First question. What are your thoughts on the efforts at Bethel to raise a young girl from the
0: dead? Wow, right out of the gate. <laughs> so here's the thing. I thought someone would ask that question. Do you want to take it then? Yeah, I'm um, gonna answer. Well,
1: you might want to explain the situation before you
0: answer <coughs> well, it. Well, so this is what I thought of. So what I realized is I don't know enough to accurately describe the situation at Bethel, which means I probably shouldn't give any thoughts about the situation at Bethel. So you should. I've heard. It. I've heard little bits and pieces, but I don't feel like I could articulate the situation fairly, or clearly, and so I think it would be foolish of me to try to answer that question. So I don't know if any of you have have more of a kind of clear understanding of it. Man, where I you could fairly explain what happened. I can't
2: give thoughts, but I can give the basic. What happened? Uh, a young girl died, who I believe her dad or mom is a worship leader for this church, Bethel, which is in, I believe, Redding, right California. It's also a school, seminary kind of development place. And the girl died, and they're uh, basically trying to raise her from the dead. Uh, and there, there's attention being brought to it now. I think is the essence of the news story, but I don't know anything beyond that. Seth.
1: Well, I just think there's wisdom, and if you don't understand a situation fully, not speaking into it. You know. I mean, I do think Christians should pray for miracles. I also think that gimmicks and hashtags are an unfortunate distortion of like the body of believers, and um, it makes me sad when people who aren't a part of something get to see into something that they're not a part of. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, it's like setting up a camera at your family dinner. It's I don't it feels incongruent to me.
2: Can I say something that's not related, but kind of related? So uh, a family member of mine <clears throat> used to watch a lot of religious TV, and there's a lot of sort of prosperity. God wants the best for you. He wants to save you. He wants to heal you of your sickness. And uh, she spent her whole life, she had a sickness that eventually took her life, spent a good decade or so kind of investing in these ministries, praying the prayers that these ministries said to pray, and then she died. And her son has just forever struggled with, why? Like, this is, my mom was so faithful to say these prayers, sow this seed, yada, yada, yada. And God took her. And uh, so I think if you're asking for thoughts, there's obviously dangers to... uh, Presuming upon God doing something here that He doesn't necessarily promise, there's also dangers in our camp of not expecting God to still be active and alive in our world today. So that's the extent of my thoughts on it. That's.: um, Sweet,
1: next question. How do we reconcile God's Old Testament directive to utterly destroy groups of people's, people with Jesus' New Testament directive to love our neighbors?
2: Seems like a Seth question right there.
0: I'm assigning a (laughs) Seth (laughs) question. We'll sign it to yourself. yourself. Please. Yeah, so
1: since I was assigned it, I'll So in the Old Testament, when you have God-destroying groups of people, um, one, there's a huge misreading of a lot of those texts in the way that people understand them when people go in and It's kill all the people. Um, There's a really strong argument to be made that when that happens, God's destroying military outposts um, of foreign oppressive governments, not necessarily just random cities that he's going to town on. And there's a really good book that actually one of the pastors at Redemption Tempe wrote called Skeletons in God's Closet that addresses this in more depth. And so um, a lot of it is the goal of God in the Old Testament was to preserve a remnant people in the midst of um, a chaotic situation. And so he's um, allowing a certain people to be a light to the nations to demonstrate to the neighbors what does it look like to live under God's faithful rule and part of that includes justice and so these pagan nations that regularly killed their children and regularly oppressed and killed all these other nations is that God is a God of justice and so he's not a God of who eternally turns a blind eye to people's unrepentant um, crusading and murdering and so Israel actually is an agent of justice in that regard and it's not just that Israel ac- ends up acting as an agent of justice on Unrepentant nations, but even when Israel is oppressing the poor and when Israel is not upholding justice, they too are um, dealt with swiftly and God uses Assyria to crush Israel from time to time. And so it's not just God's favoritism to Israel, but it's actually God's standard of justice that leads to when nations oppress and kill and pillage, the nations are punished. And that's a theme in the Old Testament. Likewise, in the New Testament, when Jesus says love our neighbors, um, love includes justice and love includes wrath. One of the reasons you discipline your children is because you love them. One of the reasons you, uh, you seek to you know, vote considering your neighbors because you love them. And so it's not that love and justice are mutually exclusive in, in that regard. And I think the other thing too, especially in the New Testament, there's this, this, a different direction regarding um, the way people of God operate in the Old Testament. It was the preservation of people in the New Testament. It's the expansion of the people. And so if anything in the New Testament, it's seen as incongruent when people take up the sword in the Lord's name because his kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't mean it's somewhere else, but it means it operates according to a different value system. And so, whereas kingdoms of earth impose their agenda with swords, the kingdom of God imposes its agenda with love and there's a willingness to suffer.
3: Yeah, I think that's really great. I'd also add that the Old Testament story is preparing the way for Jesus. And so um, everything that happened before Jesus was laying the groundwork and actually preparing people to be able to understand who he is as the repre- you know, fullest revelation of the Father. So. Great,
1: next question. Is same-sex attraction sinful? Can I be a believer and still have same-sex attraction? How can a Christian live with same-sex attraction? So, Luke, you preached on this pretty extensively. mm mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, do you want to take that question?
0: Yeah. So there are three uh, three questions there, and the common thread in all of them there is, you see, is same-sex attraction, and this is kind of an important thing to distinguish that I think sometimes Christians don't distinguish, and we should. Um, is there's a difference between a same-sex attraction, which means your sexual and romantic attractions are to someone of the same sex as you. There's a difference between that and same-sex identity or homosexual identity, which is saying, this is who I am, and this is how I'm going to live, and this is how I'm going to express myself. Um, there's a fantastic message uh, that was actually preached here last year. It was my favorite sermon that was preached here last year by a guy named Sam Alberry, who basically preached as a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. So, um, same sex attraction—I don't—I would not say is necessarily sinful. I don't—I don't know a single person who's same sex attracted, who who like made that as a volitional choice and wants that. Most people who are trying to follow Jesus and say I'm attracted to someone of the same sex would say I, I don't like this about myself. Uh, I don't want to indulge it. Um, and so, you can be a believer and still be same sex attracted. Um, but what a Christian has to do to live with same-sex attraction is deny him or herself of that, of indulging that attraction, and follow in the way of Jesus. By the way, this is what we do with every sinful attraction. Um, every, everything we're, we desire, everything we want, there's all kinds of things. I'm, I'm uh, attracted to the praise of men. And the affection of people and being a bigger deal than I am, that's probably not a good thing. So, so I maybe would say same-sex attraction, in a sense, is sinful in that it's not a good attraction. Um, and so like all attractions or desires that we have that aren't in line with the will of God, those should be resisted and we should seek to put our, our self and our sinful desires to death through Jesus and trust him to live in a way that's faithful um, and obedient.
2: answer. Amen. Uh, Just, it might be helpful. Uh, Sin, a lot of people think of it as categories. There's things that are sin, where sin, as you read throughout scripture, is a parasitic reality. Means it latches onto a good thing. So sin is always Satan's way of latching onto something good, sexuality, romance, relationship, intimacy, and distorting it. And like Luke said, with praise of men, all of us deal with this in all sorts of ways. So to like Put this on a list and say this: Where does this rank with sins? That's in the Bible. Sin is always latching onto something and causing us to have a distorted view of the world and our affections, and our mind, and our heart. And uh, so we're all in that reality together. This is just one of the ways Satan has used to use his trickery
0: and deception in this world. So, yeah, everybody, uh, puberty or older, is a sexual sinner. Uh,
2: my kids are sexual sinners too and they're, oh, and they're not
0: even in puberty yet <laughs> they're so. pre-puberty so. <laughs> right, so we're just we are sexual sinners and so all of us have to repent of the illicit attractions that we have that are not in line with God's design for sex taking place in the context of a one man one woman marriage anything outside of that anything outside of that pornography affairs uh, imagination, uh, all sorts of those desires; those all have to be repented of. And so, this is not singling out uh, one particular thing, but since the question's about it, um, you would—I would approach that like I would approach all these areas of, of temptation and impurity.
1: Just really practically for us here, I've personally had conversations with, I think, six different men who really struggle with same-sex attraction who are faithful, believing members here who serve and carry lots of weight. And and so if that's you, maybe you ask this question hypothetically or maybe you're someone who's wrestling with that, like you're not alone at this church at least. And I hope that if it's like, obviously like and even different desires have different strengths, you know? And so sometimes that can feel like a crippling temptation and sometimes it's something that comes around once a month or whatever it is, you know, you're not alone at this church and there's people who um, could encourage you as you fight that. Mm. And I... Uh, you know, I'm glad those people are part of our church, and I'm glad that they're just seeking to follow Jesus. Even in like a, everyone has to be countercultural in different ways in different cultures, right? Mm-hmm. And this is one of the more countercultural ways. You mm-hmm. know, different cultures affirm different things that the Bible rejects, and in our present culture moment, I think this is one of the harder things, just because of the counterculturality reality of that. Mm-hmm. So, if that's you and you want to talk about it, we'd love to encourage you and. Mm-hmm at least connect with other people who have walked that path for a longer time. So.
3: Yeah. There's, there's bondage in believing that your sexuality defines you. Um, that's one of the common modern myths that's super strong in our culture today. Um, and we don't believe that that's true. We believe that the image of God and, and being in Christ defines you as a Christian. So uh, we wanna fight to preserve that because we believe that there's life and love and joy in that truth. Um, but that is, a hard, that is a hard message to carry today, for sure. Yeah, just one last thought on that in
1: general, is a lot of people feel a lot of shame about how they are tempted mm. because they're tempted different than other people, whether it, like, whatever it is under the sun that tempts you, you know? And I think we need to recognize that Jesus was tempted and tried in every way, and so there's no shame in being tempted. Mm. Okay. All right, next question. Is redemption planning any new church plants, and if so, where?
0: I'll take that. Yes. And you'll find out in 2020. (laughs) Next question. Let me just say one thing on that. I'll expand beyond like five words or whatever. Um, the mission of Redemption is to birth and strengthen healthy local congregations. So we do want to see new congregations planted in Arizona and beyond. They don't all have to have the name Redemption attached to them, but we believe that local churches really are the best way that people meet Christ and grow in, in maturity with him. So we are very concerned about starting new churches. At the same time, we wait until we have the right leader to go to a certain place and to plant a church. We don't have some like, goal where we're just going to try to hit our goal regardless of who we send out there to go start these things. So when the time is right and when the person is right and when the situation is right, we, we move forward. And there are, some, there are a number of church plants across Redemption that are kind of uh, in the gestation period of getting uh, kind of prepared to be able to publicly talk about something. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. All right. What does the Bible teach regarding female pastors? Great question. Matthew, you want to take it away? You want me to take this, oh boy. Um, we, we've been talking about this a good amount. So yeah, we
3: have, we have been talking about it a lot. Uh, some, some of it depends on what you mean by the word pastor. So um, in a sense, everyone's called to care for and disciple um, the people in their lives, men and women. Um, if you're talking about it as a particular office of, like, overseer in the church, we do believe that the Bible restricts that uh, to men, not on the basis of competency necessarily or some Amen. sort of ontological <laughs> difference, but simply um, by God's choice. And so uh, we believe that that women should have a prominent role in influencing and shaping and speaking into... Um, the way that the church functions. Uh, I believe that women have a lot to offer in terms of teaching, um, but for whatever reason, in terms of overseeing the, the whole um, the whole church, uh, we believe the Bible restricts that to the male office of overseer or elder, or sometimes the word pastor is used. you have your Bible open, Luke? I do. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it asks, what does
0: the Bible teach? So uh, the, the Bible teaches a lot about this, but here's... Uh, one passage, this isn't the only one at all, um, but I think it's a, it's a key one. In First Timothy 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, says, uh, says this, I do not permit, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church, to, to Timothy, who's a pastor, elder in the church in Ephesus. And he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Um, and he goes on, and and this is a this is a tricky passage. This is not like this. Oh, everyone just thinks the same thing about this this passage. But I think the the key phrase there is, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority, uh, because later on, um, in the uh, in 1 Timothy 5, so same, same book, just a couple chapters later, it says this in verse 17 of chapter 5. Let the elders who rule well, that's that idea of exercising authority, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And there, that passage is talking about why some elders should be able to be financially supported by the church because they have that, that idea. But those two ideas are used in this same book in, I think, a very similar way. So it doesn't seem that, I don't think Paul is saying that ladies, when you come in the door, just shut your mouth and don't sing, don't talk, don't greet anyone, don't... When he talks about teaching or exercising authority, he's talking about those roles of those offices of the elders that he's going to talk about a few chapters later. Um, so I think that would be one passage that would, would come to mind. Yes,
1: yeah, so the way we understand it is, it's women at least at least here, women do teach, women do exercise authority, mm-hmm. but they don't hold the office of elder pastor. Correct. Okay. Good.
3: That's not to say that this has always been done well in the history of churches that believe this. We're not saying that. Or, or us. Yeah, or even kind of us. I mean, yeah. I feel
0: like one of the things we're trying to do constantly is live out what we say we believe, mm-hmm. which is that. Every role in the church is is important and is valued, and only one is restricted. Uh, Giving voice to women, and especially really good uh, female leaders, is just something that we're we're working to do even better at. Yeah, I feel like we're trending positively, but historically we haven't done a good job at this.
1: Long ways to go. Next question. What are some specific ways you are hoping the culture of our church will grow? Mm -hmm. How can we as individuals be a part of that? That's a great
2: great question. question. You're an environment culture guy. I'll talk about that. Uh, Since look I'm how cultured in, he is. Yeah, look how cultured I am. <laughs> um, this is for me personally, and I think for the church, I think uh, an honor of the older generation that uh, wants to give to them and not just receive uh, would be one. Um, and take care of widows and all that the Bible says about taking care of uh, folks who have lived a good life and now uh, need some care as they've provided care their whole life. So that'd be one, and I think we have uh, ample opportunity for that, just be a matter of a heart and then feet to go and do the work. Um, With our young people, so I'll just say the two spectrums, young people, I just think uh, the word I would use are jellyfish. A lot of times they lack a backbone. They lack conviction. They lack any sort of, I will die on this hill. Everything is up for grabs and based off the individual in the moment and how they feel. And uh, abortion, well, she got pregnant. and She's two years away from college, finishing college. So that's, I mean, in all my talks with youth, that's how the kids that you think are the greatest Christians in the world answer and the kids that are far from Jesus' answer. It's all very relative, individualistic, and just lacking in any sort of conviction. So those would be two of mine. That's it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'd add to this of just, uh, I hope, I mean, a culture is this kind of set of shared beliefs and habits and values and cultures felt right you can read whatever a church puts on a website the culture is what you actually experience and i think what i as much as anything want to see grow in the culture of our church is just a white hot passion for jesus as the only way to find identity and meaning and hope for me and for everyone else i know mm. um and i just would uh, Pray that our church would would grow in what that means is prayerfulness, what that means is loving and knowing our neighbors, inviting them to things, sharing the gospel personally. I mean, just I'd love to see us just grow in being Christians, (laughs) doing the work of the people of God, um, not sort of dependent on the church as an organization, but seeing ourselves as kind of the church scattered through our lives and through our weeks and um, being the people of God wherever he sends us, so... Mm -hmm. Sweet, we can talk
1: about that for a while. (laughs) go to the next question. How can we gauge how involved to be in politics? Is it inappropriate to be fervent about political things? Mm. I'll do that one. (laughs) So I think, one, is the fact that Jesus is king is a political statement. So, sorry, my Bible almost fell. It wasn't just... Pounding my thigh or something. <laughs> so Jesus King you know, would have been received a political statement. You know, in many ways, Jesus was crucified for politics because he was a threat to the Caesar. In you know? saying Jesus is Lord, you're saying Caesar is not Lord. And so the gospel is essentially and fundamentally political. I think a lot of times when we talk about being fervent about political things, we end up talking about partisan things, right versus left. You know? And it ends up being kind of demonizing the blue or demonizing the red. And you kind of end up having, like, this wedding to one political party versus the other. Uh, And that type of, like... So I've talked to a lot of, like, people who love Jesus, who are super reasonable, who are thoughtful and kind. But as soon as political issues come up, it's like their blood pressure goes (laughs) up, And they start just parroting what MSNBC or Fox News. And they say things that are antithetical to the character of Jesus. And there's like this, like it feels like this. They become a different person when you start talking about right versus left stuff, and you see that in our in our political situation. I do think that um, because Christianity is also concerned with love of neighbor and justice, that includes societal level things. And so I think Christians should be concerned about politics because we're living in God's world, and the government's called to promote the good and not and punish evil and trying to help speak into what is good and what is evil worth punishing. I think if you're not appealing to Jesus, you're appealing to some type of like evolutionary natural law, which ends up becoming, always regressing in some type of social Darwinism, which is you know the strong beating the weak, um, unless it is in value to the strong to keep the weak around for political gain. So um, I don't think it's inappropriate to be afraid about political things. I do say that if you end up kind of always in a, a one of the, yeah, sorry, I'm all over place here. Idolization leads to demonization. And so if you're finding yourself demonizing people who are made in the image of God, who disagree with you about things, you're probably idolizing some political ideology. And so I think it's more of a heart check thing. You know, are we about the kingdom of God that is not of this world, but at the same time, we're ambassadors called to lobby a foreign entity on behalf of the place in which we're actually citizens. So that's that ambassador role. So it's not passive and it's not total identification,
3: but there's a foreign interaction piece to that. Yeah. I have two, two additional thoughts. Um, the question uses the word fervor. I think our fervor should should mimic Jesus' fervor. So as we read the scriptures, what was Jesus fervent about? That would be a good place to start for what we should be fervent about. And then secondly, um, I think that to have conversations with and to read and interact with things uh, that people and, and uh, media that you don't necessarily agree with and try to see them as Jesus would see them, which is people created in the image of God that may not be right about everything, but may actually have something to say would benefit us greatly. So to be able to... um, One of of the problems that I see in political discourse is we we create a caricature of the other side of things, and then we attack the caricature, and then the other side hears that and says, well, you don't understand me at all and doesn't take our, our thoughts and opinions seriously. Not that we're all on the same side, but... Um, but if we really get to know people on the other side, understand their heart, and, and try to see that maybe you could be an intelligent person and have another perspective on things, uh, it gives you the opportunity to really interact and really grow personally and learn. Um, and so that's my, my hope, is that we can see each other as people, that we can learn uh, with humility and speak truth as, as we find uh, opportunity. So.
1: Yeah, the language that we've been using is convicted civility or principled pluralism is like this recognition that I want to feel like the fruit of the spirit even as I take my convictions into these hard conversations. And so it's not also to embrace like this myth of false equivalence that like, you know, there there are agenda items I think that any single politician could have that you're going like, this is antithetical to the kingdom of God and antithetical to belief in creation and and God's gracious goodness. And so it's not a problem to be preeminently identified with a certain political party. But I do think that if we can't, have conversations where we feel like we're full of the spirit, then there's a problem. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, being slow to speak, quick to listen. If we can't do like the ABCs of Christianity in terms of character in these conversations, then I think there's a serious problem in our hearts. All right, next question. As teenagers, what is the best way to avoid temptations that we aren't necessarily ready for? Hmm. that's a good question. So Matthew's parenting a teenager, <laughs> and Josh, parents of no, so,
2: uh, 400 no. teenagers. <laughs> Go ahead. What's the best way we can avoid temptation that we aren't necessarily ready for? So um, the book of Proverbs seems to be written by an older set of people to younger people, basically, and most of Proverbs basically says, listen to people around you. So I'd say, listen to the older folks in your life telling you stuff you don't want to hear. Um, The second thing would be start to learn yourself in how you're tempted. So we're all tempted differently. Some of us are tempted when we're tired. Some of us are tempted when we're alone in the house. Some of us are tempted and kind of combining the wisdom of folks in your life and a a beginning of a self-awareness of your own soul and how it's wired and how Satan can tempt you. uh, And then just talk about it. One of Satan's big lies, goes back to the same-sex attraction one, is that you're the only one dealing with it, so just keep it quiet. Just stay in that shameful little private mind of yours, and don't ever bring it up. That's the opposite of what the gospel says. The gospel says, bring anything to God, and he can wash you clean. So I would make sure you are talking about it with people who can help, not just your uh, knucklehead teenagers who are uh, in the same cesspool that you're in, but people that can bring help to your life a little bit. Um, and Summer's over here giggling. I'll say this. I've met next to no counselors, therapists, psychologists folks who think technology is a good idea at a young age. Uh, so depending on what your parents' rule is, just know the people that are taking care of people's brains who are working against them all say technology seems to be really sucking up this generation. So. Uh, start to self-limit yourself with technology if your parents aren't doing that for you, so.
3: Yeah, I, I'd add one, one of the things that as a pastor and as a father I'm always looking for is people who are really actually willing to ask for help and, and mean, here's what that means. That doesn't mean you, you get to define the terms as the person asking for help. It means that you're going to go to someone you trust and actually trust them to lead you through something that you think that they can help you with. Uh, and that's something that uh, some people never experience. Like there are, there are men and women that come in my office and are struggling with something and still haven't learned to be vulnerable and open and trusting and actually receive help. But uh, it sounds like this question is saying, hey, I, I need help with something. Um, so if you're able to go to someone in your life that you trust and actually be vulnerable and then receive their counsel and do it, and not kind of say, well, I'm going to be in control, really. No, no, actually, like, surrender control and trust the Lord and trust the Lord working through that person. Um, you got a chance. Yeah.
2: And that may be your parents. Some of you aren't taking it to your parents because of the way they'll react, which is an honest assessment on your part. So student ministry, youth ministry here is designed to have other adults basically Speaking life into kids and hearing what they're dealing with and helping them cope so uh, the church is your friend and your family as a teenager, so utilize the people here Amen. great next question
1: when we continually repeat sin and they repent of that sin, what does the Lord say about those actions huh. that's a hard question so this is a little plug here so uh, confessing and repentance aren't the same thing. Mm. So, when you continually repeat a sin and then repent of that sin, uh, a lot of times we think repentance equals feeling bad and saying sorry and mm. confessing it. But repentance means change of mind. Um, and we actually have a sweet counseling workshop in January about the difference between forgiveness and repentance and how that mm. plays out. And so, mm. if you want to play that, like, see how that plays, Vicky's going to lead that and Those have been pretty good so far. So I think that'll be good too. So um, That's happening. Uh, So first, John talks about anyone who makes a practice of sinning. uh, They should be nervous about whether they have the Spirit in their heart or not. And so that's not necessarily means sinning repeatedly because we all sin repeatedly, and we all sin in some other ways repeatedly, but making a practice of sinning, like making peace with your sin, there's even like when St. Augustine in like the 400s was wrestling with his conversion, he would pray, "Lord, give me sexual self-restraint, but just not let not yet." <laughs> you know, I think a lot of times we think, God, make me sexually pure, but next week, you know, or we want us to, even going back to the temptation question, Lord, lead me into temptation so I have something to blame my sin on, you know, is <laughs> the it's a, it's a functional prayer we can do that. And so, again, you will continually to repeat sin, and you'll continue to repeat regular sins, but when you kind of make a peace with that, that's when I think there's danger to be nervous about. Um, but every person in the Scriptures repeated sin, and they became Christians, and they kept sinning. And so, you're in good company. <laughs> that's, as a repeat offender.
2: And, uh, and this yeah. is the good news of being a Christian. This is the gospel freedom is that you are totally free. If it's the second time you're taking this to God or the one millionth, the gospel says you're free uh, from future punishment and current condemnation. So fuel that gospel freedom fire in your belly and remind yourself of the goodness of Jesus. Yeah. So very simply, what
1: does the Lord say about his actions? He says, keep repenting, keep changing your mind. That's the it's the most simple way to answer that Yeah, it
0: it feels like there's probably um, I know know in my life I have these things there's like the things I really feel grieved about and really cut to the heart and like man I really want to root that out of my life and then there's the things I want to kind of convince myself that I care about but I actually Hmm. kind of don't mind it that much Hmm. and I don't think it's as big of a deal as God does and I think it's more of a path to life than God does And I'm a little more willing to just kind of make peace with it and say I repented. And so I'd say, depending on what kind of a repentance you're having, you might need to deepen your repentance and actually uh, work to
3: turn from it, not just say you're sorry for it. Yeah, just to to add, uh, the book of Romans got a lot to say, but um, the early chapters talks a lot about kind of some of these cycles of sin. um, And it's interesting, as Paul kind of makes his argument, in Romans chapter 8, he kind of he kind of ends the argument with this beautiful picture of the everlasting love of God, um, and I think that in at least in the church culture that I grew up in, I, I was hesitant to really believe that God's love was was that deep and that wide and that high and that strong. Um, when I was continually struggling with sin, and yet as I've as I've grown, hopefully a little bit in my faith over the years, it's it's the very belief in that love of God for me right now, even in the midst of my brokenness, that has helped me um, move beyond some of that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, really believe that God loves you like right now. He's not loving a future version of you, but in Christ, you are His beloved child. Um, and we, we, can, we can believe that, we can claim that, or you know, uh, and experience freedom right now with, with that truth. So. Okay.
1: Yeah, we don't get into God's family through works, and we don't stay in God's family through good works, which is good news for... How do you come up with a new sermon series? That's a great question, and uh, Luke, why don't you take that one?
0: Yeah, that is a good question. So uh, probably, we're one church of nine congregations across Arizona, and I would say probably about 90% of our sermon series are unified, meaning every congregation is preaching through the same thing at the same time. So normally whatever the text is here at Gateway is the same text that they're studying at Arcadia or at Peoria or at Tucson or Flagstaff or so forth. So, um, so when it comes to those series, I actually have the privilege and the responsibility of helping kind of herd the cats in that process. And uh, what that looks like is I kind of communicate with all the lead pastors and teaching team members at all the congregations and ask them kind of what's on your heart? What do you feel like God's really teaching you? What are the things you feel like your people need to hear? Uh, what books of the Bible seem kind of like this would be really good for us in this particular season? And I just kind of compile that that data and it's just the way that God arranges it it always seems like there's a couple of different things that sort of rise to the top and become you know themes you sort of see through that so then we 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 kind of take those and go okay how how do we schedule this where where makes the best sense to do these things we try to have a little bit of a balanced diet where you know for the most part we try to kind of go old testament gospels new testament letters Old Testament Gospels New Testament letters not necessarily all in that order uh, but we don't want to just get stuck studying the Gospels forever and kind of neglect other parts of the scriptures so um, that's a little bit of how that comes up great
1: next question what are your thoughts on online slash app dating (laughs) well none of us do it (laughs) (coughs) so I am against it it for me I've not done it have you ever done it not done it.
0: You have not done it? No. It didn't exist when I was
1: dating. (laughs) What are your thoughts? You ever see a lot of people who are dating or shouldn't
2: be dating? So I got married (laughs) 11 years ago or so, 12, I should know this. Anyways, in our premarital class, we were the only couple that met face-to-face. Everyone else had met online. So Mm -hmm. that's over a decade ago. So how much more is that true now? I think it's a reality we all live within. Um, so if you're like from a generation that thinks it's lame, uh, Get over it. Kind of get over it. The other thought, so Tinder is kind of the hookup one. Just know, most of the kids I know that I love, and a lot of them who love Jesus, have gotten on Tinder to find love. So it's just kind of a reality that we have to live within for people discipling younger people and helping them think through the best way to use it. Um, I'm old school. I'd like to know my sons met their wives face to face, but whatever, it's not Probably. near, of levels of importance, this is like near the bottom as far as having a conviction on it, but it's just a reality and it's shocking how much online dating is a thing now, it's just, it is what it is
1: mm. It's like with all online encounters the potential for anonymity is a potential trap, and I think wherever you meet people, surround yourself with wisdom, getting other people because, you know, they say love is blind. It's also the emotion of love tends to be stupid. So getting other people, <laughs> other eyes, like wise people who love you, who will tell you the truth about whatever you're seeing, you know, is it's probably the further that person's from proximity to your family, it's mm-hmm. probably the more you should be intentional about getting other people to observe and speak into and love you through your dating process. One
2: thing just for older folks, be curious and gentle with how you respond to this. Otherwise you will lose your right to have any influence in this at all. So just be curious. Hey, why are you doing that that way? Tell me about it because they're gonna turn you off and go to talk to people who actually will dialogue with them respectfully. So just something to be aware of. Great.
1: Next question. Can you talk about the inerrancy of scripture in response to claim that it's not accurate due to being interpreted by men over many years. Inerrancy of scripture.
3: Matthew, you wanna take this one? I can start, (laughs) and you can clean up after me. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we we believe, so I I think what the scriptures are um, is a really important question to try to wrestle through uh, because we kind of look at things from a 21st century Post Enlightenment rationalist perspective, but these these books and these documents were written a long, long time ago um, to a very different people and with with sometimes very different goals than than we come to them with. So, um, inerrancy. So th- we believe that the scriptures are God's word; that they're inspired; um, that they're authoritative. Um, that, the concept of error is an interesting concept. Um, it, it depends, honestly, a lot of what you mean by that. So, might there be an apostrophe missing in, in, a, in one of the original transcripts? Uh, possibly, I don't think that that threatens our, our faith in the least. Um, might it be that something was written um, as kind of a, a poetic um, expression or from a different literary genre? Uh, and then to, to read it literally might do damage to it, yeah, that's, that's possible. So um, I think that the claim, I'm, I'm reading the question, and claim that it's not accurate due to being interpreted by men over many years. Certainly men can interpret things rightly and wrongly. That's why we try to read in community and read with people that, read, we read not just with um, other believers today, but read in light of what believers across the centuries have, have how they've read. Uh, I don't know. I'm throwing a lot of stuff out there, Seth. Why don't you? It's <laughs> good evening, Anthony. Yeah. So
2: it's basically asking in the game of telephone of Scripture, did somebody screw up along the way? So, just how the game of telephone works is we don't have the original ones. God, in His graciousness, would not allow us to have something that we'd make an idol out of and we'd f- kill each other over. So, we don't have the originals, but we have very close to the originals, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and that sort of thing. We have very, very close to the original things. And then from there, we can. People way smarter than us can look and say there's lots of tiny little errors but as we trace it back we are like 99.999% dead on with what we have that God has graciously given so with full confidence we can say we have God's word like Matthew's saying an apostrophe here there's you know there's more extensive work where you can look at where there might be a discrepancy on copying from the scribes but I have full confidence to stand up here every Sunday and say, this is the word of the Lord, so.
1: Yeah, the science of textual criticism, you know, people get PhDs in it and it's, we're actually doing a conference on that in March yeah. about inerrancy and the way these things, so it's going to be here, I think it's like the last Saturday in March or something like that, about why we can trust the Bible and why that matters, and so yeah, so we don't think that our interpretations are inerrant but the texts themselves while being full of variance, we still believe are without error, because they're God's word, God's word, and he can't speak lies. So there's the shortest, quippiest answer for that. <laughs> we'll go to the next question. How ought Christians respond to imminent danger with regards to other, potentially more violent religions? Do we have a responsibility to defend the bodies we were given?
3: Yeah, I just talked with somebody about this. Mm-hmm. So this is a really interesting question. Uh, I, I, I chatted with him after the last service, and he gave me a little bit more detail. But um, the question relates to uh, the, wh- where, where is there um, room for violence in the Christian religion, especially as it relates to other faiths. So if someone from another faith were to try to violently come after you as a Christian in the name of of your religion or trying to conquer religion. Um, I, I think that the real guiding principle is that Jesus conquered the powers of of the world through humble submission, not through, through violence. So that doesn't mean that there's no place for violence. At times, um, sadly, in a violent and broken world, sometimes that's the only resource we have, but uh, but Jesus is our example, and so Christianity doesn't advance through the sword. At times when, in, in the history of Christianity, when we've tried to make it work that way, it has not, has not served the, the kingdom of God well. So I think as a general principle, um, that's true. I do think there's tension, especially as it relates to protecting the weak and vulnerable. Um, I think there's some gray areas there. So uh, I have a concealed carry weapon permit. And I've had to wrestle through, as a Christian, if I were to be in a situation where I was able to help, um, what, how, would I, how would I handle that? And I've personally done that, but I don't know that, that I could say, like, across the board, everyone should think the same way on that.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, all right, next question. A lot of gray for you there. <laughs> what would you say to a seven-year-old who hates the sin and pain of the world and says he wants to go to heaven now?
2: Um, so, I'll start this off and you guys can uh, weep with those who weep, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. So, don't uh, jump through the weeping. Don't, I mean, sit with them in their sadness and just be an empathetic presence. I was talking with a chaplain at a hospital and he says, My job is to be an empathetic presence in these rooms. And as parents, as grandparents, uh, we, uh, most parent and grandparent questions are like information or. Content or truth-related, uh, but don't forget your presence and how it feels to be around you, and uh, how you can image God that way. So I would I would sit with them in their weeping. Um, I'd still have some answers, but I would not downplay that part of it. I don't know if you guys would add anything. We all have kids sure. around this age.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it makes me sad that a question like that has to get asked because that reveals the brokenness of the world, mm-hmm. and, um, uh. I'm assuming whoever asked knows why the seven-year-old hates it. Is it they hate it because they hear about these things and they're just empathetic and they kind of hear about stuff and it makes them sad? Or do they hate it because they've really experienced it and been victimized by it? And so my answer would depend a bit on kind of knowing more of that particular story. I think the instinct of wanting sin and pain to go away is absolutely the heart of the kingdom of God And I think that that's a great thing. I think one thing I would maybe encourage uh, if if one of my kids were talking about this, I think I would tell them, hey, remember the true story of the world, which is that the whole point of history is not for us to get to heaven, but for heaven to get to us. And so I would encourage this child to um, see himself or herself as an ambassador of heaven here and that they would have the opportunity to love people and um, push back against the darkness in little places where they can and that God would use them. Yeah. I've never had this conversation with a seven-year-old, but I feel like,
1: I know probably some of you adults in this room feel like this right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the texts I take people to is when the Apostle Paul talks about this, man, to, to die is gain, you know, and just to affirm that yeah. it is true, to die is gain, to be with Christ, you know, and to cast vision like you just talked about. Um. But I think that sounds like an emotionally healthy seven-year-old. You know, I think, I think one of our temptations would be to stop the emotion and with information, but weep with those who weep. All right, next question. The Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation. Why was Satan allowed in the Garden of Eden to tempt Adam and Eve, especially when God knew the outcome of ruining his perfect world?
0: <laughs> I- I told, I told Seth I, before I said, hey, anything that would have shown up on your Phoenix Seminary oral exam, you should just take it. So, Seth. Yeah.
1: So, the presence of Satan in the garden as a tempter is a question that's never answered in the Bible. I think a lot of philosophers and theologians have speculated as to the why and the how and the... Maybe God's glory is maximized in showing himself to be a healer and a saver and a redeemer, but that's speculative, that's not answered in scripture. The presence, I think part of what the Genesis 1 narrative is doing is it's uh, creating the, the inexplainable tension that one of the goals, I think, of Genesis 1 and 2 is to help you see that evil makes no sense. Because if you read it, and you're like, where'd Satan come from? Like, there's a text in Isaiah, you think maybe this is about Satan, there's a text in Ezekiel, maybe this is about where Satan came from, but those are, at best, speculative. So I think part of the goal in even telling the Genesis 1 through 3 story is that in the beginning, there is darkness over the face of the deep. where did the darkness come from? Where is it, you know, the the chaos before creation? And so I think there's this reality, that, especially writing to fallen people, that our experience of the inexplicable, purpose of that. There's something that God is doing in his economy that's making the best of him showing his character to the world, um, but exactly connecting the dots onto the what, when, why, or how is just never really clearly answered on, in the scripture. And this is one of those questions that asking why feels less important than asking what and what now. I don't know if that's fair. Yeah, so the question of where Satan came from. We know he's created, and we know that that's about all we know.
2: There's a passage in James that says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So with scripture, you need to hold on to what's true and then live in this mystery mystery of the unknown. So God's not the tempter, uh, and yet somehow the tempter was allowed into God's special place and... You know, at the end of the day, don't know.
1: Yeah, there's a lot. Like, I think it's Deuteronomy 29:29 says the secret things belong to the Lord, meaning they don't belong to us. And I think as being finite people, there's a lot of these questions that you just go, I'm not sure. Yep. And you can read the answers. I just don't think, very much, <laughs> I don't think many of them are very good.
3: Yeah, I tell my kids it's like explaining calculus to an ant. <laughs> uh, the ant. The ant just can't, doesn't have the capacity to understand. It doesn't mean it's not true. And so, uh, God gives us what we need. He understands and bears with us where we are. And there's a lot that he doesn't give us because we're not ready for it. Yeah, I hate explaining calculus. So.
1: <laughs> 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 All right, next question. Where do Redemption Gateway pastors tend to stand on the various views on the end times? Will we ever do a sermon on, sermon series on Revelation? <clears throat>
0: Where yeah. Do you, where do you guys stand? Well, <laughs> yeah. I, where do I stand or where do I tend to stand? But I think, I think even that nuance in the question reveals this sense of like that there's tendencies here, there's flinches, there's leanings, that this is the, the understanding of the end times and what's still to come is not like something that's super nailed down in terms of knowing exactly when and what's going to happen. So. Um, I think, you know... Should the, you
2: give the big buckets and then...
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. So the there's kind of uh, historic premillennialism, which means that Jesus will come back uh, before a thousand-year earthly literal reign. That's kind of one view. There's dispensational premillennialism, which is that there's a rapture followed by a thousand years of... Jesus' earthly reign. Another view that's uh, very common historically is amillennial, which is to say that uh, the 1,000 year reign of Christ is really more that Jesus is reigning right now from heaven, that Jesus really is king and he really is resurrected and that he is now reigning. Over the earth, and so he could come back at any time, and the final judgment could happen. And there's not a whole sequence of things that have to happen first. And then a- another view that was really common in probably like the 18th, 19th centuries was postmillennial, which is the idea that the church would kind of usher in the return of Christ through kind of social action and changing the world and bringing the kingdom of God into the world. And so those are kind of the big buckets. Um, I would say probably on. At Redemption Gateway, I mean, I don't want to speak for every individual pastor necessarily, but I would say I don't know that we have anyone that would be postmillennial, and I don't think we have anyone that would be dispensationally premillennial. Uh, I'd say it'd probably be a mix of historic premillennial and amillennial. Um, but honestly, we haven't talked about it, so I no, don't know. No, w- this would follow in that kind of second, third category. In our membership, the only thing we say is to be a member here, you can believe any of those buckets, you just can't believe that Jesus has already returned because some people actually believe that. So as long as you don't believe that, um, you know, a lot of you are just sort of pan-millennial, which means it'll all pan out. I don't know, I'm not worried about it. Um, uh, will we ever do a sermon series on Re- Revelation? I, I think we could, might, we don't have one scheduled. Um, but I'll tell you, if we did it, it would not be filled with charts and timelines of exactly how everything is gonna happen um, it would be much more focused on Jesus as king, which is really the whole point of the book of Revelation when you see it, is that Jesus is reigning and ruling over all things and will come back. So it could happen, but we don't have one planned.
2: Great answer. I concur. Bless you.
0: Our next question.
1: Where's the church's stance on burial versus cremation?
3: I can talk about that. Go for it. Um, I don't. We don't have a stance as a church. All right. Next question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Sorry. Go. for it. No, that's that's <laughs> true. <laughs> but I
3: could talk a little. Well, yeah, add some wisdom to it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Color it up. Yeah. We don't Whatever have. Whatever you were going to say was going to be great. <laughs> yeah. so just go. Yeah. For it. Um, I do think that uh, historically the idea of fire. Uh, associated with the body is is not, um, that's more of a pagan kind of burial reality than a a Christian burial thing, historically. Also, uh, I personally have have made the decision that I wanna be buried whole because that's how I'm coming out at the resurrection and I want my family and my kids to have that picture um, of the belief in the resurrection. So I don't think that if you decide to be cremated or have a loved one cremated that, that nullifies anything or that God can't put the pieces back together, he certainly can. Um, but I do think that the, the traditional view of the church on burial is that... Uh, the historic church. The historic church is that Jesus was buried and, and rose as a whole body, and we kind of follow in his footsteps. So. Great answer. All right, next question.
1: Is the belief in the doctrine of predestination an essential for salvation? I'll but, take that.
0: You know, no. No, the belief in the doctrine of predestination is not essential for salvation. Uh, the doctrine of predestination essentially is about that we love because God first loved us. So it's not, uh, it's not how we get saved, but it's why we are saved. So how we get saved is by trusting in Christ. The question of predestination asks, well, why did this person trust in Christ and this person didn't? And why did this person have faith? And, what, and, and so that gets into that. And so your beliefs about the why don't negate the how. If you trust in Christ and you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no asterisk that says if you believe in the doctrine of predestination. So I think that question of of predestination really expands your understanding of God. It expands and makes sense of a lot of the scripture's teaching, but I wouldn't say it's essential for salvation.
1: Great. Next one. As someone who struggles with their salvation and grew up hearing the prosperity gospel and a moralistic gospel, how might I find comfort in my salvation in Jesus Christ? Take it what?
2: Uh, First of all, I'm sorry because I'm reading a book right now and there's a line in there, bad theology kills, and that's just true. Like As you learn about God and it's bad or distorted or twisted, it's harmful and it does kill, and that's why the Bible warns teachers, not many of you should be teachers because you'll incur a stricter judgment. So there's a level of, we need to pay attention to what we're saying. That being said, if you're trying to come out of that, um, I find it helpful just to find people, real gospel saturated people and just soak them up. Uh, Ray Ortland is an author who writes little books and just retired as a pastor. He's fills my soul with gospel freedom. Uh, Steve Brown's a guy who has just a great, deep voice. He's fun to listen to. And he's got a book, Three Free Sins. And his whole point is, (laughs) Jesus really did pay for it all. Do you believe that? So just try to find. You can come up after and talk to us, and we can all kind of share people that kind of just fuel that for us in our own souls. But it's just it was a slow process getting you to where you're at. It'll be a slow process to kind of get you to a closer revelation of what Jesus actually is in your life. Uh, But good teaching good worship music that teaches you these truths, good church community, uh, those things. I don't know if you guys would add anything.
1: It feels not unrelated to this question of how do we grow in my faith, generally speaking. You know, And, it, and I think because we all grew up, whether it was told to us or we listened to it through sinful lenses, we grew up hearing some type of distorted version of the gospel because we listened through sinful years and we internalized this. And so uh, how do you go from believing something that's out of line of scripture to believing something that's in line of scripture? It's faithfully attending church. It's surrounding yourself with the community of the body of Christ. It's um, praying and reading the scriptures. Um, yeah. Showing up. It's not rocket science, but it takes time. You know, We, all, we grow
3: more like crockpots than microwaves. Yeah, the goal, the goal of those two types of teaching, so the goal of prosperity gospel is prosperity now. The goal of a moralistic gospel is I want to be good. Um, the The goal of Christianity is to to establish a relationship with the God of the universe mm-hmm. who came in Jesus Christ, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. So when you know Jesus, you experience both of those things that those things are going for, but they're not aiming at the goal. So the goal is Jesus. When I, when I read Paul in Philippians 3, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count those, them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. That's your goal. If Jesus is your goal, you'll you'll do it. So, great. Next question:
1: How do I use both the joy and sorrow of my singleness for God's glory and timing?
0: I want to just encourage whoever asked that question, that the fact that you asked that question that way encourages me that you are doing exactly what you're wanting to do. Right? The fact that you see that there's joy in the opportunity for singleness because uh, there's undistracted devotion to the Lord that creates lots of freedom and joy and great things. There's also a lot of sorrow because of all sorts of things that you're very familiar with you know better than me, but the fact that you're asking that question tells me you're already doing it. Yeah. And so um, keep seeing yourself as part of the family of God in the church and experiencing the life and the community of, uh, of the body of Christ and keep, keep that heart in your... And then come identify yourself so we can... And I'm, I'm not kidding about this. <laughs> come identify yourself so that when we meet single folks who aren't where you are, we can help... Them to go. Hey, talk to so and so because they could really encourage you. Mm-hmm. So we'll be all of us will be available after the service in the front right, and uh, we'd love to love to meet you if you want to unveil yourself. So,
2: <laughs> I'll add one thing: serve in the church. I mean, this is the season to really get rooted, not as a, a tender but as a server and an active participant in what God's doing. So, serve.
1: Great. Next question. What are the main differences between the Catholic Church and Christian Church? Do Catholics also go to heaven? It's a great question. So, I would kind of frame it a little bit differently. I'd say that there are Christians, and a subset of Christians, there are Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant. And so, I do think that just like going to this church doesn't mean that you're saved, so also going to Catholic Church doesn't mean that you're saved. I think that um, there's a lot of people who are I mean even then it's not right doctrine that gets you saved. it's knowledge of Jesus. I have some Roman Catholic friends who I think are wrong on some serious doctrine things, but I think they do love Jesus and I think they trust in him for their salvation and I do think that like a healthier understanding of the scriptures can be found here. obviously, I'm married and not a priest you know so <laughs> but I, but I, so I think the uh, so the main difference is I guess you could say, is the way they view the sacraments and In particular, they have seven sacraments. We only have two. And they view the sacraments as like means of grace that you'd have to... So when they say Catholics believe in salvation by works, they don't mean doing good things like helping old ladies cross the street. It's like certain specific works that get you favor in God's eyes. You do the Eucharist, you practice the sacraments, and that is the way that you stay in God's good graces. Whereas we'd say that the sacraments, Lord's Supper, Baptism, don't save us, but they're pictures to us
0: of salvation. That's like the simplest differentiation um, yeah, you know, maybe you, somebody you, would add to that. If you, if you talk to someone who's Catholic, you say, oh, you believe that salvation is by works. They'll say, no, 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 we don't. We believe it's by grace. But they would talk about um, grace that comes through those sacraments. So you do these sacraments, God gives you the grace. Um, it's, uh, it's infused to you. It's grace infused through these sacraments activities. We would say, as Protestants, we're saved by grace that's imputed, that's given to us. Uh, it's the righteousness of Jesus that is externally credited to us, regardless of what we've done. Um, so both groups would say you're saved by grace. The question is, how do you experience and receive that grace? And so I think that's that's one of those big differences. Um, and many Catholics misunderstand it and experience it as a salvation by works. And other Catholics really do find that they're probably a smaller remnant, uh, it seems. Uh, find that their only hope really is Christ. Um, you, grew up, you grew up Catholic. Yeah. You should answer this question, not Luke and I. Yeah, well, I was, what are we doing? I was
2: not a good Catholic, so I didn't do any of the sacraments. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't get any of the grace. Um, yeah, your answers are good. They just kind of It's a difference on salvation and grace, and it's very nuanced. And people that kind of just attack one side or the other uh, with a character aren't helpful, but uh, there's a lot of Catholics, I think, that are going to heaven, I think there's a lot of Catholics who are still blind to their sin, uh, but then I think that's true in a lot of churches, so. Mm. Great, next question. How
1: would you suggest winsomely approaching non-Christians with the message of Christ and the gospel, especially to demand something logical, scientific, etc.?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, I've had conversations with friends that like to um, think of themselves as logical and scientific. So one one of the things I like to try to do is expose that we all have a set of um, beliefs, faith assumptions that undergird whatever kind of principles that we're using to to shape and and mold our lives. So to try to kind of explain um, that even the, the decision to be to be logical and scientific presupposes your ability to be kind of this final arbiter of truth or to see things um, from an objective perspective, which really is a fallacy. Um, we, we are all looking at life through uh, lenses that are shaped by our experiences and uh, the people that we've been taught by. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, the beauty of, uh, of the Bible as a story is that we can actually inhabit that story and experience the truth of God through a story rather than just a set of um, doctrines that were written and and handed down from heaven. Um, And so kind of trying to understand the world more as a lived story in community, I think has been helpful in some of those conversations. What would you add?
1: I think being winsome, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. I think sometimes Christians can view the relationship with non-Christians as... uh, you know, like you're objectifying them, like in the same way that men might objectify women, um, Christians might objectify non-Christians and view them as like an object of their, mm. you're, not a, you're not a human, maybe you got to me, you're a conquest, and you're an evangelism person I'm trying to overcome, and, and it ends up being, you know, having this kind of transactional relationship with them, not a real relationship with them, and I think that trying to see the dignity, and one of the things I even do when I talk to non Christians, especially my close friends, is I tell them the ways that they image God to me, you know like your your business sense like really helps me understand like jesus is king you know and and they kind of sometimes think like, it's a little cheesy, but I try and look for the way that they reflect god 's character, and i 'll tell them that, and them, as atheists, are like mm. you know and then and so just try to like encourage them, not just tear them down, and I think it kind of you know, gen- creation, the Bible starts with Genesis 1 and 2, and then it goes to Genesis 3. I think we think that our evangelism starts with Genesis 3, you know. Did you know you're a sinner? You know, it's like, but I think if Genesis 1 begins by affirming the good and then going to sin. And I think one of the things we could do better is by affirming the good before we necessarily go to the fire and brimstone. I have found that to be effective, and it makes me feel like I actually have a relationship with them and not just, like, a goal for them that they don't share.
2: So one word, just there's a word called axiom. So I was a math teacher before I was a pastor. All science is built on axioms. Axioms are not provable. They're just something we assume, like two parallel lines never touch. We all assume that's true. That's an axiom. We build math upon that. That's how everything works. So the point is, we're all kind of starting with stuff we can't prove. So when you hear the word logical, it means like you can prove it. And most of our life is built on things that aren't provable. They're just because that's how the creator made them. So uh, that's just to encourage you who may feel like attacked or maybe they're onto something. Like That's just true of all science. They're all built on these assumptions that nobody can actually logically prove. So just something to be aware of.
0: The last thing I'll add is I would just say, stay on the message of Christ and the gospel, not other things. So particularly stay on the resurrection because there's lots of evidence. It isn't scientific evidence, but it's historic and logical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And so put the onus on them, on why they think the resurrection didn't happen and how they can show you that it didn't happen, because that really is the core message. Don't get stuck on the age of the earth, and don't get stuck on uh, what about all the violence in the Old Testament, and don't get stuck on all these other things. Sexuality, don't, don't let that be the main thing of your witness and of your conversation. Keep pushing it back to the, the thing of first importance, which is the resurrection of Christ. Mm. That's good. One of the things they'll say is, well, you just believe in the gospel because maybe it's what you grew
1: up in. And it's equally true, you just believe in a rational, scientific understanding explanation of the universe because that's what you grew up in. You know, you wouldn't need that 400 years ago. So there's, we're both kind of, raised, like... Yeah, we're both living my faith. You would not demand logical, scientific explanations unless you were born in a post-Enlightenment society. And who knows what the spirit of the popular opinion will be in a couple of other hundred years. And so, just recognizing that the so, like, they are a product of sociology, not like a blank slate thing that they discovered rational thought.
3: Yeah, I also think if you answer all their questions perfect, that's not what brings them to faith. (laughs) So you gotta pray for them and you gotta love them, genuinely, not just as a project, not just as like, hey, I wanna wanna win your soul for God. No, like I love you and I want you to know your creator because that's where life is found. Mm. Great,
1: Great. we got time for one more question. How can we be praying for you all as individuals in the next season of life? Mine's pretty easy, I'll do that one. I have a seven week old son, and uh, those of you with kids know better than me what to pray for about that, so yeah. No, but that's big, yeah, Taylor goes back to work part time in a couple weeks, so we have family in town, but we don't know what we're doing, working on it though.
2: Similar, just pray for me to shepherd and lead my family while I've got, my oldest is starting to get, like, take off the kid glasses, and so there's unique stuff there. We've got a baby who's opposite end of the spectrum, and they're just navigating a lot in life, so pray that I'd be a good dad. I'd be engaged with Aubrey. I'd be everything the New Testament tells a man to be in his household. Uh, That'd be the best thing you can pray for.
0: Uh, For me, uh, so this time next year, I'll have a high schooler, middle schooler, elementary schooler, and preschooler. So, we're super kind of spread out in all of those dynamics. And so, uh, it's not uh, one size fits all in terms of loving them and parenting them well. And so, I think you could always just pray for all of us that we would really stay connected to and uh, deeply in love with our wives, that we would uh, serve and love our families. Now, the other thing I'd say is just uh, this past year has been such a year of transition for us as a church. Um, things are bigger, things are different, things have changed, things have grown. Um, and the wisdom that it takes to navigate those kind of as we actually start to figure out what a new normal and, a, and the next steps for how God wants to use our church uh, going forward. There's a, a lot of uh, weight that I feel kind of related to that stuff and you could pray that God would be my strength and uh, my, my hope in that process.
3: Yeah, I'd, I'd echo a lot of what these guys said. Um, we've got five kids and our older three kind of are in one season of life and our younger two are in a different season and I think the older ones get more time and attention and so we're just trying to carve out um, intentional time with the younger ones and um, I think the ability to find joy in that I tend to relate more to the older kids that can have like conversations like more like adults and so it's harder for me to to get down on the floor and play and do all that stuff so you could pray for strength to do that yeah thanks for asking that question All right, from each of your perspectives,
1: what has changed or strengthened in our church culture since moving into our own building? Changed or strengthened? Josh,
2: you want to take this one? (laughs) He's laughing. That's a great question. Yeah, lot's change. We have a new home. It's different. It's bigger. It's more spread out. So there's, for student ministry, for example, on Wednesday nights, it's like the ultimate hangout spot, which we didn't have over there. We were all jammed inside of a building. So students has benefited a ton from the just hospitable space to be able to spread out and just be young teenagers and sit in a different desk and talking. Um, at the same time, the size and the spread outness, I don't see people regularly like I used to. Like there's people that come to the same service and if I go in opposite doors them uh, I don't run into them so that's changed uh, good or bad I don't really know um, there's one you guys can chime in other ones but just space is a lot more space to hang out and that also means a lot more space to kind of miss people on, on a Sunday or a Wednesday so we yeah anything
1: yeah the biggest loss I've experienced is that hey were you there yeah oh well I didn't see you. you know, that's happened more than a couple of times with people that I feel close to. And so that, that piece makes me sad. Um, and so, as far as like losses go, that's the biggest one I've experienced on Sundays.
3: Yeah, I, I get to lead worship on occasion. And um, when we moved in here and we're kind of higher up on this bigger stage and it feels more, I don't know, professional feeling, I've, I've noticed maybe a, a less engagement from um, the congregation, which has been challenging. And we've been praying and thinking about how to, how to try to encourage more of that. So um, that's something that's, that's just interesting. I think, I think we'll have a better answer to this question in maybe two years because it still feels very fresh and new. A lot of our staff are still trying to figure out what does it mean to do ministry in this space? What's, what are, what should our expectations be? And that sort of thing. So, Yeah, I'll add, since you guys have talked most about things that have changed, something that has
0: strengthened uh, has been I've just met a lot of new people yeah. who weren't, uh, weren't coming to our church and and quite a few that honestly weren't going anywhere really some that even were going to other were part of other religious traditions uh, that have started coming so I, that's just been really exciting and really neat to meet those folks. Um, I've been encouraged that there aren't tons and tons of people who are like oh I used to go to this church and now I'm here I used to go to that church and now I'm here but there's more and more people that kind of haven't really been around anything so uh, that's also very cool so that's you especially welcome yeah uh, you're here
1: yeah I think one of the other biggest strengths, and this is too long. I one question, but anyway, so is people seem to hang out a lot longer afterwards, right. yeah. you know, I used to get home at like twelve thirty now I get home at like one, and that's like for good reasons, you know, after the twelve forty five just people linger and hang out. there's more pockets to mm-hmm. chat and be community sounds great all right, next question if you sin in a dream, is that sin? is that sin that needs to be confessed since your subconscious belongs to you. Well, You guys ever... I hope not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're asking us to speak autobiographically? I've done some weird stuff in dreams.
1: <laughs> well, you just confessed it, so there you go. Oh. <laughs> you're, off, you're off the hook. You confessed it, so there you go.
2: Oh, that is the truth. Oh, man. That's funny. Uh, I think no, but I mean, I was just talking to one of my kids about dreams and just kind of the weird stuff that you can't control in your mind, and that's one of the main questions I forgot, like why so much randomness in our brain? Why dreams? Why nightmares? Why did you let this part of our body be so kind of out of our control seemingly? Um, So, but I've never confessed something I did in a
0: dream. (laughs) I felt guilty after certain dreams and thought, I wonder if that sinful thing in the dream is something is related to some other way that I'm feeding my heart and soul. Mm-hmm. And usually it is. And so yeah. that has led to um, not repenting of the sin in the dream, but repenting of the inputs that I've been kind of allowing yeah. that have maybe allowed the, that to take more of a root in my subconscious. But yeah, there's tons I don't understand so about that. Kind of like serves as an x-ray. <laughs> like, oh, that's in there. What do I think about that? Yeah, maybe. And yet... I would. I'd tread real lightly on
3: that. Yeah. Zero people in the Bible repent of dreams. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As far as I know. Yeah, there's a difference between repentance and confession. They use the word confess. I don't know how many people you need to tell about what's going on in your dreams, but it would be very difficult to repent from something that you can't yeah. physically, like, actually control what is going on. So.
2: Email Seth the details.
1: <laughs> Please email me the context of your dreams. I'll decide after. <laughs> After I read the dream, yeah. 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 All right, next question. When should we as Christians engage in public boycotts against companies or organizations that are distinctly against Christian values? That's a pretty good question. Any, anybody with economics backgrounds
3: in here? Matthew? <laughs> uh, is this an economics question? Yeah. Um, well, there's money involved. <laughs> Did you talk about yeah. this
0: in your MBA training? Right.
3: Yeah. No, we, I, we didn't talk about this. Um, Gosh, there are so many kind of questions inside of that question. One of the questions that I'm thinking this question is asking is to what degree should we operate in the public sphere as a, like an entity where we're together moving either a voting block or a a moral agenda. Um, There may be a time and place for that. Uh, Some of the things I've experienced in my lifetime related to Christians behaving like that make me really nervous, to be honest, and I think can easily move us from the mission and message of the gospel to other things. Um, We care a lot about uh, the way people live and the consequences of behaviors that they engage in, but we care the most about um, Jesus and making him known and his message The 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 hills he chose to die on, which were hills of, of love and justice and mercy and grace. So um, there may be a place for this, but if it overshadows the things that are of first importance, the greater things, uh, it would make me nervous. The other thing I would just point
0: out here is almost everything is distinctly against Christian values. There aren't neutral values. Uh, Everybody has faith commitments, everybody has values, everybody has a worldview, everybody is putting their faith in something, everyone has a story they're telling, Mm -hmm. and any story that isn't the Christian story is in some ways incongruent with Christian values. So obviously some things are more incongruent than others, but I think we need to just, every time I get the chance to pop the bubble as though there is neutral space and then religious space, no, it's all religious space.
2: I just add, Romans talks about uh, not going against your conscience, so uh, if the word in here was changed to private, I think you should always listen to your conscience, and if you feel like spending money at a company that is doing something that you feel like is totally against your heart, then you need to act according to your conscience. The public part is where I just think wisdom and counselors and talking it out with others is the best course of action before you proceed, so. Great, next question.
1: Dinosaurs. I've never heard an intellectually satisfactory explanation for dinosaurs before. We won't get one now either. But... <laughs> they are not mentioned in the Bible, though a Leviathan is, yet they clearly existed. Do they necessitate a figurative versus literal interpretation of the creation story? Who's got a paleontology background? Anybody? Yeah. So Leviathan just means a large beast, and it's mostly like a mythical creature that other, like Israel's neighbors talked about the Leviathans as like battling it out and out of, the, out of their fighting they accidentally create the world. And so sometimes when the Old Testament talks about Leviathan um, especially like in the book of Job or Leviathan or Abaddon, these big monsters it's mostly metaphorical to say the, the gods that your neighbors worship were, are on a, on a leash from Yahweh and so they're nothing. So I wouldn't necessarily those equal dinosaurs. Those probably equal just kind of the Hebrew writers being like cutting off at the knees the false gods of the neighboring
2: nations. Um, so dinosaurs, yeah. you say, are not in the Bible? I don't matter. think so. Okay. There's a unicorn in a Job. Is that a problem for you? No. Why?
1: Uh, I don't think the Bible was written to give us a entirely thorough account for how the earth developed over time. So there's a lot, like, you know, these stools aren't in the Bible. You know, there's a lot of things that existed that weren't in the Bible. And I don't think that's necessarily, at least in salvation history, a central component of what God's doing in the world. So a lot of species have gone extinct, not just dinosaurs. So there's one of the species that go extinct. I don't think that necessarily necessitates a figurative versus literal interpretation of the creation story. Um, And even that kind of binary thinking, figurative or literal, I think is a misunderstanding of what Genesis is doing. If you really want to dive deep on this, there's a great book called um, Genesis History, Fiction or Neither, and then you can uh, go after that.
2: How thick is that book?
1: <clears throat> Somewhere in there. <laughs> I don't know. I read it on Kindle, so it was a megabyte thick. <laughs>
2: I think you do need to wrestle with that. I mean, a lot of young people are struggling with faith because they think science is disproved. Christianity, just understand that the Bible is not a science book, but it's not an untrue book. The point of the Bible was not to give us science facts. It was to reveal God to his people throughout time and ages. Uh, And God saw it fit not to bring dinosaurs into this in his revelation story to, to us. Yet he brought dinosaurs into creation, so we... Say that's God's wisdom on that. So, yeah.
1: Even, yeah if even If you just believe in a creation, a fall, and a flood, so you, whatever rate things species are being extinct now, which is sad, and I don't think Christians should just let that continue to happen. But I do think that the fact that extinct species exist that aren't mentioned in the Bible, I think if you just believe in Genesis three through six, that's not a huge problem. Cool. Do you have more to? Nope. I could talk for a while about, about dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, we'll go to the next question. Is there any part of the Bible or book I should read as a student? Sometimes it feels like the Bible is written for adults with adult problems. It's all you.
2: Uh, so it seems like James is always pertinent. Every time I plan series for students, James comes to the top as something I think young people need to hear the book of Proverbs is always relevant. Psalms is especially relevant in a day and age where a lot of young people uh, have lots of emotions and don't necessarily know how to navigate them. So stuff like, you know, we just live in kind of an angst-filled time. Psalms speaks into that and allows you to go to your lowest of lows and lament to God in your highest of highs. And it kind of creates a, a melody to your life that uh, accurately portrays the emotions that come with being a human. So I'd say Psalm, Proverbs, James, and any of the Gospels. Um, yeah. Those would be my go-tos.
1: You had a professor one time say that the early church believed that the biggest problem that young men under 30 in particular had was that they were fools. And so they made them read the Proverbs every single day. And so I think that's a safe assumption that if you're under 30, probably your biggest problem is that you're a fool.
0: How old are so. you, Seth? Under 30. <laughs> <laughs> so I read a lot of Proverbs. Anyway. Finish, finish, You've told me that before. Finish the rest of it, because I think the rest of it. Yeah, so when it comes to like, aqu- acquiring wisdom,
1: British. the biggest problem for young, so this is especially with young men, was that they're fools until they're 30. And so they made them read Proverbs. And then from 30 to 50, their biggest problem was love of the world, in particular of their careers. And so they made them read Ecclesiastes on a regular, regular basis, and then after um, 50, 60, their biggest problem was they weren't looking forward to death enough, and to be united with as the bride with the groom of Christ, and that at death you see him face to face, and so they had him read Song of Solomon, which they mostly understood as like a metaphor between Christ and the church, yeah. which I don't think is the only way of understanding that, and so they wanted to train the old men to look forward to death, and so those three different wisdom books were for different seasons of life. That's cool. That's good. All right, next question. What is a saint? What qualifies someone to be a saint? What do you believe about saints? And how does that relate to Mormonism and Catholicism? It's a great question.
0: Um, Yeah, so the word saint gets used a number of times in the scriptures. Oftentimes, it's the way the Apostle Paul will introduce a book. He'll say, uh, to the saints who are at Ephesus or to the saints who are at Philippi. And um, in that sense, he uses the word simply to mean a Christian, someone who is set aside Uh, who has uh, experienced a new life in Christ. Uh, So what is a saint? I think the biblical answer to that is a saint is a follower of Jesus. A saint is someone who's uh, a Christian in Christ, born again, that sort of thing. So what qualifies someone to be a saint is uh, that you are a sinner and that you recognize that Jesus is your only hope for salvation and you repent and you turn and you trust in him um, now, what I think this question is getting at is that in these other traditions, there are these uh, kind of elevated people who are uh, usually after death achieve this status of sainthood. Um, I'm honestly not familiar enough with how exactly uh, Mormons or Catholics completely designate that. So I wouldn't want to, um, I wouldn't want to try to get into to that other than just to say, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a saint. You're set apart. You're given the Holy Spirit of God and you're called to live in a way that's faithful to the gospel.
1: Sweet, next question. What are some practical ways to forgive someone who's wronged you, especially when my flesh feels so justified in my anger and bitterness? Um, I'll take this one real quick. So one, this is a little bit of a plug, is Vicki is doing another counseling workshop on forgiveness and repentance and that's gonna take like two and a half hours to sufficiently answer that. I think that... Um, that's the end of January? I think there's it, information in your program yeah, about... Yeah, that it's works. in January. Yeah, so if you kind of... If there's something in particular that's Sharpie Vicky's been doing a great job with her counseling workshops. I checked those out and she'll kind of break down some of the myths of that. Uh, so forgiveness and, you know, restoration of forgiveness and anger are not necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, like, you might absolutely be justified in anger and bitterness because you've been absolutely wronged in that. And I think that, sometimes we think that forgiveness equals I have no more feelings. You know, and I think sometimes we use forgiveness as the goal of forgiveness is to forgive, then I won't feel things anymore. Um, But if you've suffered injustice, then like the healthy response to that is anger. Um, And sometimes bitterness can be like the festering on it, like like the plane that's circling overhead, you know, it never kind of goes away, and so it, it kind of festers and it reads. And then usually the bitterness is associated with like, you're having these conversations in your head where you're like slamming them and putting them down and you're winning and making them feel small like they made you feel small. And so bitterness to me feels more like probably not a healthy thing, whereas anger can often be totally justified and healthy. Um, but practical ways to forgive someone, I think sometimes like the ways you've been hurt can produce shame, which means like a closed offness. And so being able to share your story with someone, talk through it with someone, have them acknowledge that was injustice that you suffered um, can be a helpful way. And even I think like the mental image in my mind is if I'm standing as that person's ultimate judge and deciding whether they're a good person or not or deciding, and I'm assuming their motives, and I'm assuming how it's playing out, and literally like taking them off of my hook and putting them onto Jesus' hook and saying vengeance belongs to the Lord. God is their judge, I'm not their judge. And that's not something you do once and then you're forgiven, you know, but I think that's a regular thing that we have to do on a regular basis. So that mental image for me is healthy, and then also the, the sharing and like, not like, obviously that can just become gossip where you're like, let me tell you about this thing. But finding someone who's safe and I can connect to and who listens and is empathetic that I can say this would happen to me and I'm, they can pray for you through that. Those can be simple steps. But I think we tend to assume that forgiveness is like a check the box, I did it once. But I know for, pretty much no people who have been seriously wronged who aren't like having it on a regular basis see forgiveness as like this process that's unfolding over time rather than like a, you vote and mail it in and then it's done, you know. so. All right, next question. What role do you anticipate Ramsey gateway playing in caring for vulnerable women and unborn by addressing abortion? It's a great question. You want yeah, I mean, I, one of the
3: things we're excited about is abortion our Christmas offering is going toward uh, buying one, maybe even two ultrasound machines or at least being a part of that. Uh, so we 're excited about that. I definitely think we 'll continue to preach the scriptures which um, value life at all stages um, and so our hope is that that we would create a culture that um, isn 't just uh, that doesn 't just you know advance legal protections related to uh, young unborn lives but would also kind of make it culturally unthinkable. I, I think um, just the story of of God and His grace and mercy toward us would help that. Um, other than that, I don't know that we have specific things planned. You guys have any thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think one thing that's just helpful to think about is that there's there's the um, there's kind of the organizational church, which is meaning like collectively here are the projects that we're all organizing around and and kind of developing structure to and ministries and programs and that sort of thing. And then there's just the uh, organic church, which is all of us as we scatter throughout the week and as we represent the Lord in our various callings. And so um, right now, the way that this works is that there are quite a few people who either as an actual like, paid vocational job or just as a sense of calling as a volunteer, there are lots of people, I think probably dozens in our church that are involved in that, uh, oftentimes through volunteering at various pregnancy centers. Um, many of you do other things. You raise money and you march and you do different stuff related to that. And so um, I don't necessarily envision that we will find the need to make that a program or a ministry of the church, but by all means we want to encourage and, and fan the flame of those callings that people in our church have related
3: to it. I'd also say our adoption of foster care ministry is pretty significant as it relates to this issue. Because many women, this isn't their, their first choice you know, they feel like they have no options. And so to be able to provide healthy, good families where kids can be cared for and women can be cared for um, is a huge piece of this puzzle. Yeah. So um, that's something our church has invested in pretty pretty significantly as well. Yeah,
1: I think one of the things too is like with the Leslie DeBartalon staff, who helps facilitate connection with other local nonprofits. I don't want us to feel like we have to recreate the wheel every time we get a cause in mind, but partnering well with local nonprofits and most of what she's been doing has been connecting with organizations that work towards those exact groups. All right, next question. Why are there only men on stage right now? Are there women currently in leadership of the church? And would there be a space for them in a moment like this? Good question. Luke, you want to take that one?
0: Um, Yeah, so there are three questions to that. Uh, The first is, why are there only men on stage right now? Um, and there's a couple answers to that. One is, um, we decided to have our directional team, uh, be on this stage and those are all men. Um, and, uh all of us are pastors we believe that the teaching office of the church is to be an office that's uh, given to pastors and elders Um, and so uh, there are times where we've had uh, interviews and we've had discussions we've had different things where women have been on stage Um, but the primary kind of teaching authoritative uh, teaching ministry is really the role of pastors and elders which we believe is a role that's for uh, men according to the scriptures and so especially in a context like this where it's like hey what does the Bible say? And we're kind of more than normal even kind of saying, here's an edict of what the scripture says. Um, That's the answer to that. Are there women currently in leadership at the church? Yes, gloriously and wonderfully. And a number of remarkable women that are in uh, leadership roles. One of the things that's been really neat over the last few years is that a number of years ago, most of the women on our staff played mostly administrative roles and more and more women on our staff are also playing or in addition to that playing uh, more uh, leadership and shepherding and teaching and those sorts of roles. And so that's neat to see the the gifts uh, there expanding. Um, would there be space for them, <clears throat> space for women at a moment like this? Um, I don't think so. Um, I don't know that that would be, I don't think that would be like a really awful thing at all, um, but uh, because we're viewing this as kind of an extension of the pulpit and that's an extension of the elders, um, I, don't think, I don't think we would probably have women be part of this or be part of preaching sermons on Sundays. Great. Anything to add? Nope. Yeah. I don't think we've
1: done great at elevating
0: women historically
1: as a church. I think we're taking better steps. Mm-hmm. But I think this is something that we all recognize we want to do more of and more effectively. Yeah. is do that and, yeah. All right, next question. How do you think through the auditory volume levels and varying lighting during the worship service? That's
3: great. Good question. How do we think through that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, one thing to know is we think through it a lot. So, um, you I, all help us think through it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, so there's, there's kind of three main categories of, of how I think through it. And, um, I've had the opportunity to lead our production ministry and now, uh, be a part of it as Luke leads it. Um, one is we want to think missionally in everything that we do. And so like any, um, anyone on mission to a particular context, you want to know your context. You want to understand who it is that you feel the Lord is calling you to reach. And then you want to speak a language that connects with that audience. And so um, it's challenging in a church as diverse as ours with um, uh, generational diversity as well as cultural diversity. Uh, you kind of have to pick some target. And so we've... We've tried to do that, we continue to reevaluate that, but w- so one of the reasons is that we believe that uh, the production elements that you experience will speak a language that people will connect <clears throat> with the people we're trying to, to reach. Uh, the second reason is we really value, highly value um, participation in corporate worship. And my experience has been that in uh, rooms that are very, very bright and very quiet, people feel like everyone's looking at them and everyone can hear them. And so if the volume level's too low, people don't sing as loud because they don't want anyone to hear them. And if it's too bright, they they might not express themselves, their worship with their postures, with their physical postures as much. Uh, So that's the second reason. And then the third reason is um, the songs that we choose to kind of uh, present as opportunities to worship uh, have been crafted and designed to be presented a particular way. And so uh, I had the opportunity to go with my son to a Matt Redman concert a few years ago. And we saw there uh, a whole diverse group of people all very, very much engaged with uh, the worship that was taking place, uh, young people, old people. And um, I think that's for two reasons. One, one reason is it was really done well. The production was, was great. It was, professionals did it, they did a great job. And it was loud, by the way. It was quite a bit louder than anything we do here. Um, but it sounded good, and so it wasn't, it wasn't off-putting or harsh. And then the second reason it, people were engaged is people liked that music. And so what I tell people is, uh, if, if you uh, are struggling with some of the production elements, but you genuinely like the, the type of style of music that we're doing, um, we're working on the production elements. I think we're pretty close. We're working on it. But if, you're just, if you just don't care for the music that we're playing, that probably isn't going to change very much. Uh, We feel like that's kind of what, again, that's a tool that we feel like the Lord has given us to to reach that target that we feel called to reach. So what would you add?
0: Um, I don't know that I would add a a lot other than uh, one of the things we try to do is empower people who are really good at music and sound and who are really good at lighting design to be able to do those things. And so... Um, there's lots of reasons they make the choices they make and I trust them because I know that they're good at those things um, and I'm just not going to be real quick to say, well, why didn't you make the light do this? You know, Because I don't even know it did that. Um, and so, I uh, just try to empower and trust people who have some of that creativity and some of that skill.
3: Yeah. Every worship expression through the history of the church has been a contextual decision. There is no, like transcendent standard and so what we're trying to do is discern the context and present something that best speaks the language of the people we're speaking to all right next question
1: what hope is there for those who die young or those who lack of mental capacity makes them impossible for them to express saving faith it's a great question
2: what yeah, I think we got this one last year, too. Um, I'll have a similar answer. There's a little book, uh, What Happens to Babies When They Die, I believe is the title, and it just talks through this very thing. In um, his argument is they go to heaven because they're uh, in God's hands. Um, and just kind of one of his main arguments is, as you see hell and condemnation and punishment in the Bible talked about, it, it's always uh, people are specific sins and things they've done in this life are talked about and his point is babies and uh, the mentally uh, incapable uh, aren't in that category the Bible never just talks about a random neutral group of people people that are being punished God's talking about specific sins Uh, uh, so that's it's a good it's a short little book it's easy to read I think Luke recommended it to me because he's done funerals for young kids before Um, but I'd say they're in the Lord's hands, that's what I'd say.
1: Yeah, even if you believe in original sin like the church does, you know, people are still, nobody's sent to hell because they were, have original sin, they're sent to hell because of their sins they commit, yeah. yeah. That's good, all right, next question. What course of reconnection, or how do you suggest plugging into a church after being severely wounded by God's people?
0: God's people, we hurt each other a lot. Mm-hmm. And so first I just would say, you're, you're just not alone in that. And it really, really stinks because you feel like of all places that ought to be safe, that ought to be loving, that ought to be humble and caring, this should be one, the church should be one. And, and too many of us have, have experiences where that's not mm-hmm. the case. Yeah, the
1: best part about the church is the worst part of the church, mm-hmm. that it's full of sinners. You know, otherwise nobody would be here. But when you show up, everyone's sinners, you know. And so re- reconnection, how I highly suggest plugging in. I th- you know, there's a lot of risk in opening yourself up. But there's no relationship without risk. And so there's, there's pain in willfully deciding to allow yourself to be possibly hurt again. And that's not pleasant or easy. Um, but I think that that's a huge step of faith is to same to open myself up to potential future harm by being vulnerable by being known by being seen and uh, you know discerning that you know kind of the way that like if you have five cards you know you show people one card at a time and if they earn the second card if they earn the third card if they earn the fourth card you know so you might tell some people i was hurt by the church and they'll be dismissive or whatever and you go, okay well i'll show that card to somebody else now <laughs> you know and uh Depending on how severely you were wounded, you might need to talk it through with someone. You might set up a meeting with a pastor um, or a counselor at the church if maybe it was a pastor that hurt you and pastors don't feel like good people to go to. Um, so I know it's work and it's risky, but I'll try to find someone that you can feel seen and known by. And sometimes all it really takes is one or two redemptive, intimate connections for you to be able to because you don't have to be best friends with everybody at this church to be here. You know, obviously it's impossible, but you kind of do need a couple healthy connections and it may only be a couple.
0: Um. Yeah, I mean, this is why we have Start Here. This is why we have Rooted is to try to create those courses, those paths into it. I just would say you have to do it. Um, in my experience, just in being a pastor, as long as I've done it, it's like the people who let the hurt keep them from reconnecting, stay hurt and they don't heal, and they don't get better. And many of them drift from the Lord altogether. And so you've got to make a commitment to, to make that effort. It really is worth it. Yeah, it's like the pain of physical
1: therapy. Yeah. It gets painful, but if you don't do it, then you yeah. don't do it. Yeah. yeah, sorry that happened. I'm sure there's a lot of people in this room who that question applies to. Our right, next question. What is the church doing to address the suicide epidemic, especially among students, as well as the increase of mental illness?
2: What? Another easy one. Uh, (laughs) So our our student pastors went to a deal at the Queen Creek Chamber of Commerce where it was all the local community leaders just tackling this question together and nobody has a good answer. I mean, the counselors who deal with this I mean, they'll have insights, technology seems to be playing a part, uh, all this stuff, but nobody has like the silver bullet. Uh, so what we're doing here is we're not shying away from this, we're reading books on this stuff, we're talking to counselors, uh, our student pastor leaders and the mentors are trained by uh, once a month and we bring in counselors to talk about these specific things and just how to address them. I'd say the number one thing we're doing is that's not reactive and that's proactive is just making this a space where kids feel loved no matter who the kid is. Uh, So our tagline, our kind of mission is No Love Center. We want to be a ministry where any kid can be known and loved as they are and then centered on the gospel of Jesus. And we say the order matters because we don't wanna just be Sunday school Bible teachers that pass on information brain to brain, but we wanna be in relationships, real relationships with young people. And a lot of our kids are dealing with this. I mean, I've, in this school semester so far, I've had five calls of kids being taken to, you know, mental stays because of this. Like this is just going on all the time. Uh, I wish it wasn't the case, but we're praying and we're making this a space where people feel safe to come in and we're trying to learn how to partner with other people tackling the same thing. But it's, uh, it's a question I have for the Lord, like why this? I don't, you guys have teenagers, you guys are in this world as well.
3: Yeah, I, I think another thing we're investing in is marriages, we're trying to provide resources that allow marriages to grow and flourish. Um, this isn't always the case, but oftentimes, when there's stability at home, when mom and dad love one another and get along, there's there's less of a chance of this in the home. Uh, we also are just in a society that has tried to eliminate the uh, the reality of absolute truth, and we've taken away all the definitions of what it means to be a man or a woman or just a human, um, and and so then people are they're they're dying under the weight of self-determination. They're feeling the gravity of trying to define every element of who they are, which is a weight we've never, we've never been intended to carry. Uh, and that's, that's really heavy. So we're trying to, in a winsome, loving way, tell people who, who they are. It's created in the image of God, loved, loved by Him, broken through sin, and redeemed by, by Jesus. And so, um, helping people just understand the, the purpose of their life and um, and how God kind of, where they fit in God's story, it, that, that orients you and doesn't feel quite as daunting and overwhelming as an entirely blank canvas that you now have to paint out. Yeah. Well, and I, and I just know
0: there's some of you that are in this situation, and we love you, and the Lord loves you, and you are wanted and you are valued. And uh, any time that you need to kind of put your hand up and say, I need help, and you're afraid that you're going to be ashamed for it, or you're going to be looked down on, Uh, we're going to do our best to surround you with love and care, um, because the Lord does love you, and he's for you.
2: I did a Q&A with students like this, and text in, and 60 to 70% of the questions were anxiety, panic attack, depression related, so um, young people, I'm sorry you have to live in this world, but we want to help. The other thing I'd say, we see ourselves as generalists, we're kind of pastors that maybe know a little bit in other areas but we're not specialists like doctors and psychiatrists so a lot of what we do is say this is something that needs to be taken care of at a psychiatrist so uh, if you need help navigating we can be kind of a first stop sometimes but we're going to bring in other people that can help as well so
1: Alright we have time for one last question Ooh, baby. Looking back over this past year what are the idols in cultural influences which have impacted our church. I think we're out of time.
3: <laughs> all of them? Yeah, all of the, all of the cultural I'll, I'll start, I mean, I, certainly consumerism is a huge one. I mean, a lot of the work that we try to do as pastors is to um, reframe the, the questions that we're all asking because we've been told from a very early age that um, life exists for our pleasure, and if we don't like it, we should speak up and have an opinion, and if it's too hard or too messy, then someone else should do it. Um, and so I think just this idea that I'm, I'm the king, please me, um, that runs counter to the way of Jesus, which he came to serve. He was the king, and he, uh, you know, Philippians 2 says he gave, he gave that up to, to serve. So that, that's very different than the story that you're being told. Um, every second of almost every day. So.
1: Yeah, I think the one of the big ones, especially this next year. Luke's talking about this next week. Is especially like in millennials. Um, millennials are more likely to marry someone of a different religion than of a different political party. You know, because I think political affiliation feels more basic to people's identity than their belief in Jesus or not. And so I think that that's something that we're always tempted to, especially, like, in, in our context of, like, our political affiliations to become more basic or fundamental to who we are, you know, and we're demonizing people who aren't demons, but people who are people. You know, we should demonize the demons and not demonize the other political party. Um, and so that that thing will be, it just you see that on social media, that's something i don't up the political idolatry I guess you could call that I'm not saying that being passionate about politics is bad but like that being the thing that makes you different than other people is problematic the consumerism one is the biggest one that I see I do anything else
0: uh, we probably need to stop we're out of time but whatever has culturally impacted you whatever idols you've been tempted by that's it because we're the church mm-hmm. so we uh, yeah that's good let me pray for us Father, help us
1: learn to keep the first things uh, the first things and allow second, third, and fourth things to be where they are. I pray that we would have our hearts centered and fixed on your good news and that we'd find our identity there and nowhere else. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.